Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Episode 200. I just wanted to reflect for a moment before we get into this 200th episode of the podcast. Some thank yous on the occasion. Special thanks to all the artists who've taken time out of their studio schedule and their lives to speak to me. Many thanks to all the listeners. I don't really mention on here all the great response I've gotten to the podcast. All the messages from all over the world from students who appreciate insight on how these artists carved out their niche. From the artist community, who many of which feel a sense of community listening to these artists and their stories, it's been nice to get so much support and kind words for the podcast. Thanks to all the musicians who've lent music to this. If you're an avid listener, you know how important music is to me and what a large role it's played in my life. Michael, Evan, Sean and Yoshimi, David, Will, and all the others, thank you. Thanks to all the sponsors who've supported the podcast especially to Golden Paints. I've known Mark Golden for over 15 years now, and I couldn't ask for a better sponsor for this podcast. And thanks to Emily Burns. Emily is the talented artist and designer who has lent her skills to making the logo and design for Sound and Vision. She's pretty much the only other person who's had a hand in any aspect of the production of the podcast, and it's greatly appreciated. I spent the last almost four years single-handedly booking, recording, editing, and making this thing happen. Having a full-time art practice, a teaching job at Penn State, an amazing family, co-running a non-profit youth soccer club, and whatever else fills my schedule. Is it easy? Not really, but I think it's a testament to how much I love speaking to these artists. I really love this, parking tickets aside. If you'd like to show your support for Sound & Vision, post a photo today, spread the word, leave a rating and review where you get your podcasts. And the reason I ask listeners to do this, it's simply so people who want to hear from these artists know what's out there. Again, thank you all, and uh, here's to 200 more. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA degree, and a three-year certificate program focus on experimental learning and sustained studio courses. Both programs invite students to focus on painting or sculpture, with drawing as an integral foundation for all creative production. Each semester begins with a two-week drawing or sculpture marathon to generate momentum and expand one's range of strategies for future studio work. Since its inception, The New York Studio School has emphasized rigorous learning through direct experience. Learn about scholarship opportunities, schedule a tour, and ask questions by emailing info at nyss.com. The school welcomes applications for fall 2020, full-time study through nyss.org. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York, and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. 
Rosemary Fiore is a visual artist from the Bronx, New York. She combines painting and performance to produce artwork out of the actions of mechanisms. Her work investigates the space that exists between chaos and control. Her smoke painting tools harness and mix color smoke released from fireworks. These tools paint on paper using the painting technique fumage. She creates large abstract works on paper for exhibitions, commissions, and performances around the world. Her work has been exhibited by Mocha Jacksonville, Weatherspoon Museum, Queens Museum, the Bronx Museum, and Socrates Sculpture Park. Rosemary is a fellow of McDowell, Yaddo, Art Omni, Skowhegan, and Sculpture Space Residencies. She's been awarded grants through the Milton Avery Foundation, NYSCA, NIFA, and the Wellentis Sharp Foundation. She's been reviewed by the LA Times, the New York Times, New York Magazine, Art in America, Art Forum, The Village Voice, and New York Arts Magazine. Her work is included in the public collections of Texas A&M University, UBS, Fidelity, Witherspoon Museum in North Carolina, and Cosmopolitan Hotel in Las Vegas. She's on the McDowell Colonies Board, teaches at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and is represented by Von Lintel Gallery in Los Angeles. She'll be performing at Penn State University on April 23rd, sponsored by the Campus Arts and Hub Gallery. Here's me and Rosemary in conversation. I cannot get over your glasses. Well, thank you. I love them. <laughs> Those might be the, my, the favorite glasses I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. Where, I don't want to ask where you got them, but... I got them at, um, is it Brewster's Closet? In Beacons. Beacons. I always mix up yeah, yeah, Beacons Closet. for whatever. Yeah. Well, they have a bunch of them now, but yeah, like the vintage place. The one in, the, yeah, they do, in Williamsburg. And then I just, they're just Stella McCartney. Nice. And I took everything out and put everything in. Yeah. And now they're, you know, they do everything for me. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a while. It has. 1999. Yeah. That's a long time. And that's when you started that stuff? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was but, using um, I was using my car, yeah. which was a Subaru Legacy, um, as a as a, as a drawing painting tool. Right, I yeah. used um, the car fluids that I kind of uh, made a, a connection um, to the the power source was the engine of the car. I turned on the car, and I was able to connect um, this. Uh, this mechanism that shot fluid out of the back windshield wiper from the car. So like dirty motor oil, transmission <laughs> fluid and, it and whatnot. Seemed, it seemed pretty messy. It was, it was or messy, not messy, but just like a lot going it, on. It was a lot going on. Well, you know, Skowhegan had, do I want to say, was it 40 people or 35 people or 65 people? I don't, do you remember? My f- memory, which as we mentioned is terrible. Yeah. I feel like it must've been around 40 people. Okay. So right? there, yeah. It seems like about, size remember those so. group photos they take oh Seemed like about 40 people yeah god that was amazing um and so there was so crowded yeah no personal space um so i started to spend a lot of time in my car trying to figure out well number one what to do after graduate school because i just finished uh, my mfa program at the art institute of chicago yeah um out on my own as an artist trying to figure out how to create my own studio practice, what was my process, highly interested in using, you know, taking away my hand from art making. That's, a, that's where I was at that point, just yeah. removing my hand from art making. 
So I, I was sitting in my car, um, and I just thought of using the car as an art-making tool. Nothing new, right? We had Rauschenberg, who did a collaboration with right. John Cage, mm-hmm. who created a long scroll of a tire print, of an inked tire print on paper. Yeah. So I kind of, that was kind of the starting point of how can I push that further. Um, and so I continued to use a lot of found technology to make art with, everything from lawnmowers, which is a project that I created and um, exhibi- uh, exhibited at VCU in mm-hmm. Richmond, um, amusement park ride. I took a scrambler and turned it into a, a fixed-point drawing right. painting tool. Uh-huh. That was a collaboration with Grand Arts in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, I used floor polishers to create paintings, um, waffle irons to create paintings. Just this is a all, lot of this is all post school. All post Skowhegan. Right. Yeah. Well, what, what so about that was, before? Like what? So I. I well, you was, grew up in New York, right? I grew up right outside of New York City in Westchester. Okay. Yes, but my parents are, were both from the Bronx, and so that's where my studio is now in the yeah. old, in the old neighborhood. But so, I could imagine you coming, like, just, I don't know what it is, but my mm-hmm. memory of you being out on that lawn mm-hmm. in the space with, like, the car, and I don't, it, I could picture you coming from, like, the countryside or something. No, I mean, suburbia. <laughs> I came from, straight from Chicago, actually. Yeah. But that was the only space that I had as a private space. Right. There was so many, and that's why I, I picked the Romare Beard in studio, which I don't think any longer exists at Skowhegan. That was it. It was the, the pigeon. Down? It was the pigeon coop, oh, and there okay. was like holes in the floor. Right, but it was the right. only studio that was a solo space studio with nothing around it, and so um, I chose that. And then yeah. I could I, <laughs> and it was funny because Tom Finkelberg. I remember he yeah. was like, "Hey, you know, nobody chose this studio except you." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Um, but it was a great space. It had a good feel for me. And I was able to do what I wanted in that 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 cool space. Um, and so anyway, um, I started to drive my car up to park it. I just started spending a lot of time in the car and right. looking over the manual. Um, and um, before that, in graduate school, I was creating cast sculptures that I had motors in and computer chips, and they moved and they did things. But... I wasn't using the movement to create artwork. Um, where did that? Where does it all come from? So you grew up in Westchester. Mm-hmm. Your parents are from the Bronx. Were they creative people? My dad and my grandmother were both artists, so they both taught in the public schools okay. in the Bronx. So it's in it's it's a direct bloodline thing. Uh, yeah, you know, um, yeah, I think so. I don't know. But yeah, I'm not coming from a family. Like my husband's family, they were all artists. Oh, really? The whole entire family. Well, that's weird. That usually doesn't happen. <laughs> usually, <laughs> the usually sister, don't get the yeah, everybody. Artist group. No. Mm-mm. So he he grew up like within the context of, you know, um, and his mother is an imagist, mm-hmm. Chicago imagist. Yeah. So she would hang out with all. She went to school with all the, the imagists. So he would go to their studios and run around as a you know two year old. Um, so he was deep in within the the context of. The artist world, right? How right to, and that's a deep, like, images. I imagine those yeah. get-togethers were a little wacky. <laughs> <laughs> Very surreal, right? right? There's a lot of surrealism involved with it. Um, but, yeah. I mean, listen, for Christmas, we gave his mother a full-sized mermaid skeleton, which she's now painting from and incorporating it into her <laughs> painting. 
things. So it's a wonderful thing. We have a lot of fun. Yeah, so it's a creative um, environment. Very creative. I mean, we we spend um, holidays doing figure drawing. Like, okay, oh, it's Thanksgiving. If we're there, it's like, hey, let's rent a model. Let's all uh-huh. draw together. So my niece would draw. I would draw. My husband would draw. She would draw. And it's totally awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, but I, I didn't grow up like that. I grew up with my mother was a principal. Okay. In the Bronx, in a elementary school. So what you're saying, a very easygoing school with no tension or struggle <laughs> no. or nothing as a principal. <laughs> you know, it which was is already a loaded position. You know what I yeah, mean? I'm sure. Totally. But it was her neighborhood that she grew up with, yeah. and so it, it it was you know something. It's her community. It's her community. Still, I'm sure it was. It was a way being for a principal her. Principal seems mm-hmm. like a tough gig. It was tough. I remember visiting, but she was. Um, she would walk down the hall, and everybody would get in line. Oh, they would, they would hear run, her run, run away. <laughs> they would get the principal. <laughs> and um, she somehow managed to have the whole school have a silent lunch, which is quite a feat. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was in high school, I made her signs that said "quiet" with the with the finger over uh-huh. the lips of a, of a head, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would show that, and everybody would be quiet. It's it quite amazing, but you know that was her her world. Yeah. Um, and your dad was an art teacher in a okay. high school in Co-op City. Nice. So that was all. These are you know that was another challenging community. Yeah. You know? But and, teaching um, and art. I yeah. mean, you know, all the bases are covered. <laughs> <You've> <laughs> That's got a roadmap. Right. Yeah, have a roadmap. Um, so we would, you know, go to the Met all the time, and you know, um, there was always art, uh, you yeah. know, opportunities to make art. Um, but I, I had to make those decisions when I was older. That's where I wanted to direct, you know, my life. Right. And make those decisions. Uh, and I remember looking at a college. I, I think I was looking at different colleges and stuff, you know, in high school. And um, I went to some kind of portfolio thing at Pratt. Mm-hmm. And the guy told me, he's like, if you don't go to art school now as an undergrad, you're never going to be an artist. And then I knew right then that this guy was full of, you know, yeah. you know what. Right. And that um, it has nothing to do with that. It's about you. And what you decide to do with every day, 24 hours a day. Well, thank goodness you knew that at that point, because I'm sure there's a lot of people at that I age savvy. who are like, who are, oh, okay, I guess I have to go pay tuition at your school. So, yeah. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just a, so you like ha- a recruiting you have to, thing. Yeah, you have to do a lot more than, than that to fool me right. into, into something like that. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I was brought up to be self-empowered enough to, to know when I saw BS, and yeah. that, that, was, that was it. But So I ended up going to the University of Virginia um, and focusing on studio art, but I had so many credits in art history that I just double majored in, and all I needed was one more class at the end of the day. I couldn't get enough of those art history classes. Yeah. It's amazing. Wait, is this UVA? Mm-hmm. Okay. You've, you, so it's not VCU. Right. No, right. it's the yeah. Monticello. Monticello. It's, it's the one. Charlottesville. I've been there to a graduation where there's that. The lawn. Yeah. yeah. The lawn. That was surreal. The whole bit. Isn't there an Edgar Allan Poe thing? Yeah, he, he was there. And yeah, and there's like a room where supposedly yeah. it was the... Where he did the Raven or something? I thought that was done at Yaddo. Maybe, but I. But I is that's that's crazy? Why, why would he be in Yacht, at Yaddo? Or why would he? Have, first of all, Yaddo didn't exist, but in Saratoga Springs, I don't know enough about Edgar Allan Poe's history, and maybe somebody said that there. I don't, whatever. I I somehow feel like that's a false lie. But he did 
got kicked out of UVA for drinking and gambling or something like that, I believe. I don't know if he has a degree. He had a degree from UVA. Well, he was there. Yeah, he was His there. His spirit lives on. <laughs> spirit is there. There's also, an, isn't there a Poe house in uh, the Bronx? I don't know. I should know that, but I don't know. And I should know it better. I'm, I'm throwing out a lot of things I'm not 100% sure okay. about. This is, there's no fact checking on this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there might be a couple of people who are like, yeah, of course it is, but you know, it's all good. <laughs> no worries. Spotty memory here. But, um, so you liked UVA so you, and the, I, the I, university um, experience? Um, I was you know, in the studio all the time. I, I met a few mentors there, which, yeah. was the, which is really always the best part of, of an education, right? right. those deep relationships. And so Lydia Gassman was the um, a mid-career Picasso scholar, and her focus was on the weeping women and cosmology mm-hmm. and um, kind of the spirituality in some way of, of Picasso's practice, yeah. where you know, she would look at a napkin... Uh, picture of a napkin he had drawn on and you know kind of like map out the star system of lines and connect it to a constellation of a fighting bull and oh my god she was just amazing and so I was her research assistant but she was also a modernist painter so I would build her canvases for her as as an undergrad and so her beautiful modern apartment the white rug was spattered with paint and it was a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. It was just incredible. She painted right on it. Um, she was probably in her late 60s or early 70s when I knew her as an assistant. And she would wear, she was a Romanian Jew. Mm-hmm. She um, escaped, her family escaped uh, Europe. Time. Yeah. Um, heavy accent. Mm-hmm. She would touch every student's face and say, Babika. You know, she was just. <laughs> Red lipstick, funky hair, leopard tights, high heels. Charismatic. Charismatic, fashion obsessed. Yeah. Brilliant. So we would go, I would sit down on her beautifully spattered rug, and we drink wine, smoke cigarettes, and talk about Apollinaire Foucault. Nice. <laughs> it was my dream. Yeah, those um, pe- kind of people, though, they, they pave the way, you know. They pave the way. They sort of light the mm-hmm. fire. They do. And all of her research was installed on every wall with lines and connecting notes and this and that. And they were art installations. And I had the unfortunate job of returning books mm-hmm. because what she would do is she would oh, read she destroyed them. <laughs> she lie. Haven't you read this? And how could you say this? And you haven't done your research. And wrong, 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 which with Sharpie. Yeah. So I would always get, as soon as they heard that these books were coming from their house, the, from her apartment, the, the library would look through every page oh, yeah. and there would be marks and Sharpie and everything. Damage, damage, damage <laughs> the whole way through. <laughs> oh my. But it was, um, she was very inspirational for me and, and you know, her lifestyle was so out of the box for what I had experienced, not having grown up in an artist's house yeah. that it was really inspirational for me to see that this type of lifestyle is achievable. Right. You can live within an installation of your own mind's art, your own art. And that um, since she was so surrounded by it, she was so deep into her subjects. And it wasn't just painting. It was all of her research, you know? Yeah. So um, 
yeah, that, that made UVA an incredible experience for me. And then some of the professors in the department I had a very close kind of relationship with, and they were mentoring as well. Um, I did spend a year abroad in Italy and in in London, and that mm-hmm. was that just opened up my mind. I was able to see Rachel White Reed's house oh, yeah. installed in the park there, and I mean, you know, before it got demolished, and that that piece just blew my mind. Yeah, it was so unsettling to see the inside of the house right. as the outside. It was really weird. I mean, I, I don't think I would have the same experience now since, but. Then at that time, at that age and where I was, and, and I was just a, I'm a sponge for learning about different art techniques and the young British artists were just exploding off of the, into the world at that point. I think Damien Hirst, it, it was only a couple of years since these you know, young British artists had you know, really started to make it their, 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 leave their mark. Yeah. You know? It's funny how sometimes like that Rachel White read and certain mm-hmm. pieces can just blow mm-hmm. your mind. Yeah, and I remember seeing the Bruce Nauman heads oh, on yeah. the thing. Yeah, and where just being was like, that? I think it was in New York. Um, uh-huh. I want to say Is it Ma- Mo- MoMA. MoMA, I think. Mm-hmm. I just remember encountering that piece and being like, "What in the world is that?" You know, <laughs> yeah. like I was just like, "What?" <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's such a great way of being like, and then looking up that work and being like fascinated that you could be that mm-hmm. diverse and you know. Those p- yeah. early moments of like wonder, I think, yeah. paved the way. Yeah, I think in like in high school, the Jasper Johns Muse- uh, Museum show was it at the Met? Gosh, um, there were quite a few. There was a Degas exhibit that had a huge impact on me, and um, but we were since my parents were both public school teachers, we did a lot of traveling in the summer. Yeah, so that was something that really well, it was an opportunity to see so much art. That's so, a really nice advantage. I mean, and to yeah. have both, you really have to have both parents doing that. You yeah, know? yeah. That's kind of a bonus. Yeah, because they, I, you know, listen, they had like three or four months off yeah. in the summertime. And, um, you know, our lives are really full. And because of that, we were right. able to do a lot of things and uh, always, always traveling and seeing things, whether it be local as far as art or I think we made a trip to France to... Italy and to um, to England. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. Yeah, it's a lot really of early tra- It took me so long to travel. Oh, really? You no, know, just growing up with an yeah. event. We didn't have any money, and we never mm-hmm. traveled really, mm-hmm. other than road trips. Mm-hmm. But you know, like flying places. That it wasn't until I went to college. No, and I remember there was an um, airline called People's Air or something like that. Never heard of you it. You had to. Um, <laughs> I remember I was so excited about the possibility of traveling that when the flights opened up the day and the time, it was in the middle of the night, I ran into my parents' bedroom and I said, okay, you can start calling now. And you had to use a rotary phone to call this people's air. Uh-huh. And then they would finally, you know, it was first come, first serve on these really cheap, cheap tickets. Yeah. And like there were screws missing in this plane with duct tape, you know. <laughs> it reminded Jesus. me of like Aeroflot or something yeah. like that. I remember that's what that case was there. And... um and I, I would sit and make sure they dialed, and I wouldn't let them give up. Yeah, they had to get the tickets because I really wanted to go. Right, right. Know? That's great, though. I mean, and you sound like you were willing to take your life in your own hands. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. But yeah. when you're young, you're not thinking of that. You just oh wanna, no, you're not. Let's I travel. Mean, yeah. So yeah. Well, once you finished Virginia, I mean, was it 
foregone conclusion that you wanted to study mm-hmm. for a couple more years? So I, I received a fifth year to stay on, and really the work I created in that fifth year got me into graduate school at the Art Institute. Yeah. So I created this installation Which, uh, work. What, what year was that? 97? Around. When I was in Virginia? No, when you started Chicago. Oh, yeah, 97. Yeah. We would have been in the same class. Were I, you at the Art Institute? No, I didn't go. Oh. I went to Yale instead of the Art Institute. Oh, that's Institute. right. You went to Yale. I knew that. But that's I had right. gotten a full scholarship to the Art Institute, and I turned it down. Oh, see, I, I took my full scholarship. You got one? Yeah, through the fiber department. See, we would have been together. We would have yeah. been in the same class. The trustee scholarship, I think they called it. They have a great. I mean, that mm-hmm. giving kids full scholarships like that is so great. I don't know what Important. it's like now, but yeah. I don't think it's. I think they still only give out one per department. Yeah, I don't know. I could year. be wrong. But it's um, still a gift for that person <laughs> because oh, nowadays, there's no way I would have got. I could not. I couldn't have gone. I didn't have the money. I didn't yeah. want to take out the loan and. It was expensive back then to go to the Art Institute. Right, yeah. Just even for two years, it's really, you know, living expenses. And, and even an assistantship, teaching right. assistantship doesn't cover everything. Doesn't yeah. cover everything. It covers Imagine something, now. but. Nowadays, I, I yeah. guess it's a lot harder. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I Anyways. don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have kids. anything to Good say. Luck. Good luck. <laughs> you know, they'll figure it out like we figured it yeah, out. Yeah. Art is one of those things where you can't kill it. So it's just they're right. going to figure out how to do it and they'll, they'll do it well. Yeah. You and know? those who are really driven and, mm-hmm. you know, you'll just find a way to make you, it happen. You always do. I mean, yeah. it, because literally there's nothing else you can do. Right. Oh. And yeah. once you've found that you're really happy, it might be a hard life. Every, every life is hard. Um, but once you, you find out that that's what you, you, you're designed to do, you're not going to give, you know, it's very hard to, to make a choice to do something else. Right. Um, unless it's, you have no other choice. And so part of, you know, what I think a lot about is privilege that we had, um, just the privilege of one being able to afford a school, you know, and, and being able to focus so much time in high school or post high school to get in. High school and and um, university, undergrad, to to prepare a portfolio. You know, I wouldn't have gotten into the art institute if I hadn't taken that fifth year at the art at the um, as an undergrad. It was it was like a grant. You know, I didn't yeah. pay for anything. I could take classes, had a studio space, and they gave me a show. And that exhibition allowed me to create work that I could photograph right. an exhibition, a large exhibi- exhibition with installation work and sound work there and movement and 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 stuff and in fact it's really funny i wouldn't say funny it's interesting because tamron who you just met who works at the hub and Mm -hmm. teaches as well she at at penn state yeah she um she was working on my exhibition i didn't meet her she was behind the scenes uh, organizing organizing i guess i had installed it once at the gallery at the art at the art building and another at the student center, the same exhibition. And yeah. she was at the student building and she organized it. And that's why she asked me to apply to, um, to this, to, to uh, put work up at Penn state. Right. So it's a very small, small world. world. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, how small stu- it is. I tell students that all the time. It's like make connections and talk to people and, you know, yeah. sometimes opportunities or you'll just meet someone. And then 15 years later, you'll meet them again and right. your worlds collide in like a 
in a way related to whatever you're doing work-wise yeah. too. And it's, you know, just keep your, keep your radar open and be nice to people and, and, you know, yeah, be social, talk to people and, yep. and that stuff is important, you know, because it's communicating. Yep. It's, it's very true. Yeah. And in li- I mean, in life you should be that way anyway, because I mean, everybody, we're all equal, right? We all have our wonderful experiences. We have our superpowers, so to speak. And yeah. you just, everybody has their own thing and, and it's worth spending the time to get to know everybody. Definitely. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, burning bridges is something that I think is for idiots. Yeah. There's no reason to do it. Some people you might not agree with them on a certain politically or whatever, but Hey, there's other things that you can connect on. Totally. And, um, and you learn from each other. We're always learning from each other. As an artist, you have to always give yourself a little bit of slack. You got to love yourself and, um, make mistakes, learn from mistakes, know that mistakes are, are even more important than successes. They always lead the process of figuring things out, even on some like the studio it, it, and making decisions that aren't quite work right for work, and then changing those decisions to to fit the work better. All those things are are, are really important, yeah. and they have to be embraced. If you don't embrace, I call it the light and the dark mm-hmm. <laughs> together. Yeah, you're never going to be able to to get to your vision, right. whatever that is. And sometimes we don't really even know what it is, but right. we still strive. For me, it's just a wonder. You know, like when I made that work with a scrambler, I was with a really good friend from UVA. Mm-hmm. This was years later. He's a writer. And we're on the scrambler. And I said, I sat there and I said, you know, this is like a spirograph. <laughs> is this right? Am I like tripping or something? Is this like a spirograph? And he's like, yeah. Totally. Which is called like a s- hypocycloid. Mm-hmm. A s- I, I might be pronouncing it wrong. It's a circle that rotates within a circle. Uh-huh. And um, years later, I did the project at Grand Arts, but it was that moment of time where just something came to me and I wrote down the idea and then there was an opportunity to make it. Right. You know, so that process of getting from A to B from the idea to making it seemed impossible because how was I one going to get a scrambler amusement park ride? Mm-hmm. And two, <laughs> how was I going to get the paintings done? They're 60 by 60 feet. That's like four and a half, four or five stories. I don't know what it is. It's somewhere in between there. It's but big. It's, yeah, like how how am I gonna do this? So I remember writing in my you know just thinking like this is when like cows can jump over the moon kind of thing. But hey, it could be an interesting project if yeah. I could figure out how to make it work. And when you meet the right people um, that are willing to dive deep into these mysterious you know projects, which are not easy to figure out, then you can figure things out. Right. You know, and um, it's it's about having faith, I guess which is something that has always been a struggle, you know, with right. me. But now it's a little easier because I, I recognize, like, when I'm going to lose faith in something, it's part of the process, and it's good. Mm-hmm. You know, those dark times when you're, like, pulling out your hair and wondering, right. why am I doing this? And I should just not do this and, and just – but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just – Seeing it through and the persistence and all that, Yeah. Yeah, you have to wonder. You have to to want to find the answer out to these questions in order to persist. Right. And you know, and it's funny when I met with Grand Arts, and they said, "Can you guarantee that the Scrambler thing is going to work?" And I said, "No, I can't. I can't. I wasn't savvy enough to make an animation. 
Because if I had, I could have just shown them the animation. But I took out a scrambler and I said, you see? (laughs) (laughs) Not a scrambler, a... um, Spirograph. And I said, you see, this is what it's doing. It's going to be this, just bigger. And I actually made my, um, my sketches using a spirograph. Yeah. So what I, with that, um, project, I treated the ride as an art making tool, but, um, as a, almost like a print, an inkjet printer Mm -hmm. where I did one color at a time. I started with the lightest color and then I went to, to blacks or so I took the colors from the tool the colors from the amusement park ride. So it was primary colors plus white and black. The seats, the vinyl seats were black. (laughs) (laughs) So I was able to um, make that decision easily because I just took the the primary colors right from the ride and um, we were able to match the colors and use them. So that's cool. Well, um, getting back to Chicago, was that a good experience for, I mean, did your work change a lot there? Yeah, it, it did. It did. I just worked, worked, worked. You know what I remember most there were the other people in the program that I, you might, my colleagues. <laughs> right. And um, what they were making. Student, there's a lot of students there. Yeah. Right? And they threw the fiber uh, st- uh, students in with the painters. So yeah. we would have been thrown in together because right. I'm assuming you would have been painting. I would have. Yeah, at that point. I'm not yeah. sure. But, um, and so, uh, you know, the long nights sitting in the studio with the painters and, you know, I've, I've always been a painter anyway. It's just, uh, it's always been so problematic for me to figure out how to create my tools and how to remove my hands and how to approach paint. Right. And so brushes are really don't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> like paint for, you know, traditional regular, traditional, they just don't, um, but, you know, what was really helpful, when, when I was an undergrad, I studied in Florence. I studied art conservation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I studied with one of the um, students of the chief conservator for the Chimabue Cross, which was yeah. destroyed during the Great Flood. Um, and so we learned um, a lot of techniques from how to reline paintings to um, trateggio, which is just a way to apply streaks of color to an area of paint loss that you can tell the restorer's hand as a separate artistic contribution to the work than from the original piece, right? Yeah. Um, And so I learned, and then I interned at um, at a a conservation shop. And so I learned all the traditional um, techniques of Cinino Cinini. That's uh, so cool. In the Renaissance, and Vasari, actually, Nino Vasari also... Um, wrote about restoration techniques not as much, not as deeply as, because Vasari was like the first crit art critic, right? right? right. So, like, that was his main. I'm not so thrilled about his painting, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, but his contributions are very important. And so, Cinino Cinini wrote a whole book on, on art, artist materials. It's like the Myers book. Do you remember that Myers it's book? It's like a hand, like a sort of yeah, like Bible this, of materials. This is how you mix pigments with right. this. This is how you cast a full figure out of a plaster cast. Yeah. I'll show you how to, This is how you restore, you reline a painting. This is how you clean a painting. So I, I recall that um, for text, there was a whole bunch of textiles that had to be, to be uh, cleaned. And so he said to me in Italian, he's like, go down there and get some bread. Get the, that really soggy stuff, that, you know, like the really spongy stuff. And he told me which bread. So I got the bread and we, we ripped out the middle of this spongy bread 
and we gently rolled it over the surface of this textile, and it picked up all the dirt and left all the oh, tempera weird. paint. You know, That's so, so funny. Nothing new because in Chinino Chinini, they used to use bread as erasers for charcoal. Oh, really? Yeah. It's funny because uh, there's always that that myth that they clean the Sistine Chapel with Q-tips and water. Oh, when they when they did that when they restored big it, yeah, restoration. Yeah. I don't know if it's true or not, but that was the word That's on the street. I, yeah, but That's you would think it's like this, you know, special. You always think it's going to be something. Oh right. A little more. I don't know how to describe it. Not elevated, but bread. <laughs> <laughs> High tech. You see, Italians are. They stick more to tradition with conser- conservation. Yeah, they stick more to traditional thing. Um, the Americans are the ones that will use more like sort of industry-based methods yeah. to clean or to restore. I mean, think Chemicals about... Chemicals or... Yeah, I mean, so the restoration techniques, because, I mean, American conservators have to deal with the Abex art, yeah. uh, a lot of experimental early acrylic paintings, and God knows what, Magna stuff, you know, that... Non-traditional Non-traditional. Art, you know, stuff that hasn't been tested over time. Yeah, and so usually with the Italian conservators, they're dealing with a, a known quantity, right, yeah. which is usually, you know, you know egg temper. Like, the biggest problem with the Sistine Chapel was the um, Al Secco part. You remember our... Yeah, yeah. our <laughs> Instruction at Skowhegan on fresco, <laughs> the Al Secco part of it, uh, of course, used the egg. Yeah. And so the bacteria over time was really destroying the surface. I got to say, though, I was fortunate enough to see the Sistine Chapel with no restoration and then to see half and half. And That's then, like night and day, right? And then to see the whole thing. And um, part, I mean, my interest in materials and technique, it started really there yeah. with restoration. Um, and or, or even before, because remember that since I was an assistant to Lydia Gassman at the University of Virginia with Picasso Scholar, mm-hmm. right? Right. There was so much interest, of course, with surrealism with her, right? Yeah. So there was so many techniques that, you know, um, Max Ernst has so many techniques that were very interesting to me to study, Um you know, via her lens on the world yeah. um, as a mentor for me. Um, and that really sparked my interest in materials. And that has carried through with, throughout my career is this interest in pushing the boundaries of materials and how to apply them and, and mark making and ways to achieve different kinds of marks. Um, and, um, yeah. I love how different that is, though, in a way. Because... Art conservation is seen as such a formal, tight kind of, you know, the materiality it, oh, it of is. it is. I could is, never do it. It's so specific, <laughs> it right? It is, yeah. But then the stuff that you're doing is so outside the box mm-hmm. and creative and kind of almost mm-hmm. like punk or like, you know, mm-hmm. just like a <laughs> well, more I mean, experimental. And, sure, sure. You know, and, I, and I see it kind of in the line of like thinking of Cage or people like that who are Absolutely. doing things that are, you mm-hmm. know, just pushing outside of the norms of, mm-hmm. you know, expression and the way things are wrote as far as, like, making. Right. Well, the chaos thing is very important with uh, the controlling chaos yeah. and finding that, that. And same with me, with John Cage. Um, I think I could never do artist, uh, art in, uh, restoration. Yeah. I mean, there was another intern when I was there in uh, Florence that summer who spent six months picking off paint from a 
Putti sculpture. Oh my gosh. To the gold with, with like a little pin and a microscope. It was not my thing. That takes a certain <laughs> But there was patience. many, like when you reline a canvas, the restorer creates these small bags which are sewn together with, from linen, mm-hmm. you know, and they're filled with BBs. And you weigh down the canvas so that when you transfer the, you know, the canvas from one backing to another, it all is pressed evenly. Well, that's interesting. So I took that concept. Yeah. <laughs> so when I created, um, when, I, when I started working with uh, fireworks on paper, and I started using collage to, you know, to, to rethink the form of the image using all material that was generated through the process of fumage using fireworks, I created sandbags, which were not small. You know, they're, they're yeah. substantial 10 pounds, 5 to 10 pounds or whatever they're. And I, in my studio, you can see a whole wall of them because I cover all of my paper pieces after I glue them with these very heavy bags. And I got that idea. Just to dir- flatten them? Dir- yeah, to, yeah, to like flatten them as Evenly. flat as pancakes, yeah. like as flat as you could possibly get them. And um, the adhesion is phenomenal because it, the glue just dries underneath a weight yeah. and everything is flat. And so the paper doesn't warp. Um, and all that was was from my time working in restoration and, yeah. and remembering these bags of BBs that they had made right. uh, to reline a canvas. So I think that there's a lot of elements here and there that uh, one you know keeps with them as they go forward in life. Yeah. And, and for me, that was one of those those instances. That's and cool. um, everybody has them, you know. Uh, and as an artist, you, since I don't, I can't just open a book and follow follow something to do what I do. I have to constantly create ways of dealing with problems, not only applying, uh, you know, pigment, but how to um, see the process through from start to finish so that I can get the work that I want to get out of the, the, the whole process. And yeah. so um, I'm always creating these different ways of doing it. I think all artists do that. I love visiting artist studios and seeing the way that they're organized and how they um, sort of, you know, make life easy for them when they paint or whatever right. they do. And uh, as a painter, I think all painters are, are very extra about yeah. that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> in their own way. Right. Like you're probably extra in a way that I'm not extra and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, taking, you know, using your techniques would do nothing for me and same the other way around. So you have right. to kind of figure out how to make your processes Streamline as possible because you want to spend a lot less time dealing with technical issues and more time dealing with the creative process because yeah, that's just, the fun part. You kind of like whittle away what works for you and what yep. you're trying to get at. So you just, over the years of working with materials, you get just like little hacks here and there or mm-hmm. you find this. Mm-hmm. Oh, that works better than that. And then that's you just, right. over time, you kind of streamline it. Unless you're one of those people who just are constantly trying to reinvent what they're doing physically. Right. Which some people do that. Exactly. They never want to know what they're working with. Right. It should always be, you know, a variable. And that's it, right. It just depends on what you're trying to do. That's right. Were you uh, sort of bringing in a tangent? Are you interested in music, A, and B, music that is experimental? Or there's such a parallel between, I think, certain kinds of music and what you're doing with work, but I don't know if that's oh yeah in no, a no, wheelhouse I, at all. 
I, I have a confession. I'm like a Pandora John Cage station fan. Oh, that, really? That's so <laughs> it's straight to Cage? <laughs> well, it's not always him. It's, Tony Conrad? Uh, yeah, you know, it's whatever they, whatever they fit into that category. That algorithm, yeah. But I, I, love, I love that kind of music when I'm creating um, work. But sometimes, you know, sometimes since there's when I perform it's really like a dance with the tool when I yeah. when I use my pyrotechnic tools and um, you know there's a movement there uh, the, it's a dance with the tool it's a collaboration it's a partnership and so you know one thing I want to do in the future going forward and I, I just haven't had the the right collaboration to do this is to 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 make the tools become music sort of sound generation generating tools because you have wind you have the vibration of the tool as it rolls on the floor or on the ground which tuning forks you know whistles uh, anything a lot of things can create you know sound with the tool um and so that's kind of something i'd like to do can you just mic it up i can I, i just um I'd like to collaborate with a musician or a composer on yeah. that, actually, because I think that there's a lot more that would be, as I would open up that oyster, you know, crack that nut of kind of combining yet another thing, another genre into what I do. Um, now, not only movement and performance and painting and sculpture, but also sound becomes something that I can, you know, control in some way, Definitely. right? Or yeah, it can yeah. create the context or the 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 situation in which sound would be generated. Uh, that would I would love to crack that nut open with a composer. Remember or that, something um, like that the officially advice the way things go video? Oh, I love that video. I love the sound in that. Oh, that's the best video. Isn't it? It's, it's the like best. ASMR before Yeah. What that yes. Was. But it was And did you see the show at the Guggenheim? Yeah. That was pretty incredible too. Yeah. yeah. Really incredible. It was really incredible to see everything in context. Yeah. The new work um, that video is groundbreaking. I mean, you can show that to students now. It's so contemporary. Yeah, it's timeless. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, that band OK Go did, like, a version of that with oh, one yeah. of their videos, mm-hmm. speaking of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. everyone loves that stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone loves Rube Goldberg's sort of contraptions yep. that, you know. But, yeah, that was a really kind of a groundbreaking video, I think, as far as art. God, I, you know, I would love to have, um, to see... Will teach a class, and yeah. the only thing that you do in that class is just the end of the semester is create something like that. So you spend the whole semester experimenting yeah. for each little part, and then the, Put it the all whole together. thing comes together at the end, and that's the whole point of the class. It's not painting, it's not drawing, it's it's just it's really engineering, isn't it? Yeah, and time based engineering, time based engineering, and then like you know such a high level of failure in that right throughout right. the throughout the process. And think about um, it too, if you split them into groups, mm-hmm. it would be kind of like an exquisite corpse where mm. you, at the ending, you figure out the beginning and ending first and you say, look, the group A's ending is going to be a domino at this spot. Right. And that's all you got. Yeah. So you have to not only work within your own constraints, but then you have to make this whole yeah. thing flow together. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that would good. be an exquisite course. Maybe we yes. should do a joint syllabus. Oh, like wouldn't that be fun? It would be really fun. I mean, you would get, uh, that's the thing. It's when we were, we were talking about Legos before, mm-hmm. you know, it, I mean, there's something universally fun and kind of, I don't know, it's that, that childlike exuberance for 
creativity that I think comes out and things like that, that yeah. when you reconnect people with that feeling and, mm-hmm. and bring it into like a classroom setting or, you know, something you can do as artwork, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, really, I think would inspire a lot of people to take it to the next level. Yeah. Or even have like a mega group of artists. Yeah. You know, spend spend time, decide to spend time, you know, once once a month on this project will take two years and you all get together and you you figure out these parts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. I mean, the creativity level is just so amazing and thinking outside the box, it just trains you to accept failure as right. part of the process, even more so than anything else. I think with painting, when you have an object at the end, you know, I think it's harder for, for artists to accept that failure while going through the process. And with something like this where you're creating a sort of a group uh, experiment, um, you don't have that same looming, you know, like the canvas has to be finished or the, the, the piece has to be finished, it has to be this size. And, you know, it's, it's easier to sort of just let loose. And a lot of, with me, a lot of it is learning how to accept failure. There's nothing ever that is done that is a failure. Right. When I use the pyrotechnics... You know, so much of it is um, chaotic, you know, and um, but I've just kind of because the process is so explosive in so many ways, it, it just takes it, I've just it's taken out the control element. It's, it's allowed me to really find a balance between the control and the, um, the chaos. And each artist, I think, finds their own medium with which they can do that with. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, and um, for me, it's that medium, um, fumage via, you know, the fireworks. So right. um, I have friends who use pencils. <laughs> That's pencil on paper. Right. For me, I could never do that, you know. But for them, they're able to create works that don't feel too, too, too tight or too controlled. I mean, good work is that balance, right, between the embracing the unknown and the chaos and then create and then the the balance between what you bring to it, which is kind of controlling it down. For me, that's interesting work. Um, So anyway. Well, so why don't we talk a little bit about what you're up to now? Mm -hmm. Because you're working here. Yeah. We're in Pennsylvania. Yep. And, but yeah, I'm sure you got other stuff going on too. So yeah. Can you share all that? Sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so here I'm, I'm working on a, a, an exhibition performance and workshops, um, but um, I'm also working on a, a TED Talk, which will happen at the end of March. So that's what I'm doing and Where when are you I get home. Giving that, do you know? At Texas A&M University. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm working on that, and uh, I'll be going to Kohler Residency in mm-hmm. uh, May. I'm working on with the foundry there, collaborating with the foundry, working on um, pyrotechnic tools that I'll be using in performances. So Nice. I'll do that for the whole summer. Mm -hmm. Come back in late August. So it'll be a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to that. You've never been adverse to being on the road, it seems, or being doing residencies and getting out there. Yeah. Do you feed off that energy or does it take the life out of you? I think (laughs) uh, I don't do it every year, right, these residencies. And uh, one year I did three residencies. uh, What was it? Blue Mountain Center, Saltonstall, and Yaddo. That was too much. That's a lot. That was too much. I, I learned that early on. I think, like, I'll be away for 16 weeks at Kohler. I think that's, like, the maximum. It's going to be a lot every day in the foundry. Four months. 
Yeah, well, it's from May 11th through August 22nd. It's a long spell. It's a long spell. But you can get a lot of work done. Yeah, I mean, I'll be flying back for, um, first off, I'm on the board at McDowell Colony, Mm -hmm. so I'll be in for their... um, for their uh, metal day in right. August, and um, but still, it's going to be a lot of uh, away. But yeah, you know, I don't have kids. I have a husband, but we don't have children, so it's easier to yeah. get away. It's always been easier for the, me the to get away. The isn't fully dropped. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like once you have a kid, I feel like your residency thing is. Mm-hmm. Well, I know maybe some people do it. Some residencies allow yeah. for it, but I think it's so hard when they get into their rhythm that you just yeah. say to yourself, "All right, I got like eighteen years here." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, to hold tight, and then after that, <laughs> residency tour for the rest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Skowhegan was nine weeks, right? Wasn't I, I? Don't think it's nine weeks anymore. I think it's seven oh, or really? so, I think it's less. I think our experience was much longer, and I feel like at the end of those. That nine weeks, people were ready to transition to the next thing. It oh, was yeah, it was definitely. really a lot, just Some a lot to take Some people were ready after the duck itch hit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was just poor Nao. I remember her just covered from head to toe. <laughs> Everyone made fun things. of me because I wouldn't go in the lake. I don't but know, you I was, were smart. I didn't want to do it. And people yeah. kept making fun or just being like, "Come on, man, just jump in the lake." I was like, "Nah, it's not for me." Mm. And sure enough. You knew it. Yeah, some intuitively, there was something there. Something but. told me to not go in that lake. I, I did a residency at Roswell, uh, New Mexico, for a year. Yeah. That was incredible. That sounds amazing. It was amazing. It was, let me see, I was scheduled to go in October 2001. So <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Push that, that Push that back a couple of months because uh, it was a little too difficult to organize all this. And... Um, uh, so, but being away from my practice here and from everything that was going on in New York, it really just freed me up to just start really diving into the work that I'm doing now yeah. with the pyrotechnics. And, um, and that was great. That was fabulous. But I remember trying to like rent out my Red Hook space, rent out my Red Hook studio, put everything in storage for it's a year. A lot. Yeah, it's and a lot. going through that again would be impossible. I mean, New York is one of those places where it doesn't let you go. It's right. so hard to like tie up all those loose ends. Yeah, it's almost like you're you're just stuck. You yeah. I mean, I used to feel that way, and then like when you have a kid, and the, you know the school system there is so regimented, or yeah. it's such a thing mm-hmm. that it's it is really difficult to just think about like spending time away, you know, like mm-hmm. a significant amount of time, mm-hmm. and then you get that feeling of, like when you get back of like catching up. Yeah. Seems intimidating. I think I had that. I was doing the AIM program through mm-hmm. the Bronx Museum yeah. before I left. And uh, Jackie, who was teaching it there, she said, I said to her, how am I going to, I'm going to miss so much here. And she's like, just go. She's yeah. like, you're, you're going to come back with uh, so much work. And she was right. I came back with so much work and so many ideas and I was just off and running because because of this the undisturbed time for an entire year yeah I mean it's just it's a, you can't even think about it it's like unfathomable it's just it's not like Yado or McDowell's like two months max right it's a year yeah that's a lot of time with yeah 
with your everything taken care of. You know, Which is I didn't. Great. Yeah. You know, it's almost like um, utopia. <laughs> but I I did teach a class at the local university so that I could learn dressage. Oh, nice! <laughs> so I learned how to ride a horse. Yeah, and it was amazing. It was That's really cool. fun. Um, but that was my dressage money was teaching. And um, not that I have done it since, but it was it was really fun to to be able to have that experience out there. Um, but I had to give up my lease in Red Hook and everything, and uh, I ended up getting a Sharp Studio, which at that time, uh, which I think is called a Sharp Wellentis Studio yeah, now, Wellentis yeah, Sharp. Mm-hmm. yeah, or Wellentis Sharp, which was in Tribeca, and so. I moved directly into my studio. Don't tell anybody, but I just lived out. You know, I lived oh, out yeah. of my studio down there, and I was um, able to just make continue that experience from Roswell of making work because I didn't have any rent to pay whatsoever. Yeah, and you know, I had That's the nice. gym to you know go and work out and and take a shower, and yeah. I just worked on my work, and it was pretty incredible. It's great. Um, but so I was able to extend that experience another year, so that was great. And you like the Bronx. I love it. Well, it's from it's my family's from the Bronx. Yeah. So I live in Morris Park, which is the old Italian area. And that area is really interesting historically because it used to be a race course. Mm-hmm. So that whole area is a big racetrack. Like what kind of race? Horse racing at first. Oh, right. Then it got sold to, I think it got sold either first to the car industry and then to air and space or it's the other way around but either way they had like experimental flying machines that they would (laughs) (laughs) i think langley's langley had a plane that he flew out of there and chevrolet i believe had uh, a car and and then the racetrack then there was a huge fire and the whole place burned down the city bought it and started to cut up all the area into plots yeah um and um so anyway you can still find horseshoes and and where 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 we live is located on the finish line crazy (laughs) how do you know like the old photos or something well this is a i'm a fourth generation to live in the house yeah so okay okay. but so my next door neighbor was best friends with my grandmother okay so um but yes there's photos there's you know catalogs and you know books and stuff on it and you can do the research and um yeah, so we, we figured out that we were right on the finish line. Yeah, that's great. And um, so, it, and you're a Yankees fan, right? Um, my mother was. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm really not into baseball. It didn't take. No, but no. Yeah, I feel like people from the Bronx too. Even if they're not huge fans, they're yeah. A fan. It could be a Yankee fan. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> <laughs> my husband is a Cubs fan, and that's like if you're a Cubs fan, you're yeah. you're you're Cubs like fan for life. you're a Cubs fan for life. Um, but my mother was a very big fan, and she got everybody's autograph and yeah. then lost them all because they would have been thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars, like the amount of... She was like a, a groupie. A collector of all that stuff. She was yeah. a group. She would go to all of them, and she would go to the dugout. She would get everybody's signature. And, Wait, you your know. mother or grandmother? My mother. Your mother? Yeah. And none of that trickled down? You didn't go see games and stuff? We did. We went to see games, Yeah. No, it didn't. I it mean, didn't she take. would wait online and get balls signed when she was, you know, 70 years old. Yeah. Um, it was who she was. Right. My father grew up in the same neighborhood, but didn't care at all. Really? So I think it depends on, on who you... It took the mom. She was the baseball She's fan. She's the one. Yeah, she was the one. It's pretty great. Yeah. I so. mean, it's such a, you know, 
I, I go to the Bronx to see the Yankees. Oh, That's, so you're a fan. Yeah. I mean, I, All right. from, you know, I didn't, I grew up in Pittsburgh and I'm not going to mm-hmm. be a Pirates fan. I mean, no. I'm not a masochist. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. Steelers and other teams. Yeah. But not, not the Pirates. So yeah. when I moved to New York and, and being in a Japanese family, that was when Matsui started playing for the right. Yankees, which was a huge, you know, he's like the biggest player in Japan. So it was a big deal. Right. right. So just started watching the games mm-hmm. and it's kind of a nice, like a pace while you're working in the studio to have a baseball game on. Cause yeah. you don't always have to be watching it, you know, it's nice to hear the audio. I have yeah. to admit, cause it brings back wonderful memories of the cheering. My mother would, you know, cheer and I, right. I would hear that and she's gone now. So it's, it's, it has a bit of an, you know, a yeah. connection to my, Emotional connection to me, right? And um, that was always in the background in our house, you know. But yeah. uh, my brother is much more of a baseball fan than I am, and um, my nieces are huge baseball fans. That's cool. Yankees, and yeah. you know, yeah. So yeah, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's like the, the thing here is it's it's really exciting, and it's great that you're doing this workshop for the students, and it's yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds like you're having fun. It seems yeah. like fun. It is. Maybe it's, it's just the illusion of the physicality of it that it's in pyrotechnics, but it just seems like Yeah, fun. I always look at everything as a huge experiment. Yeah. You know, you put all the right things that need to be in place, right? You don't want it to be a failure. But um, so there's a chaos. You know, right. chaos is always in the equation with my work. Um, but I, yeah, I think, but, you, you know, it, and I think it's important to open up your work, you know, I. I'm not just interested in creating imagery, although that's something I do all the time when I, you know, I'm at home in my studios. I work and work as a painter, pull yeah. my hair out, try to create imagery. And, um, but, but what comes out of these projects that I work on is so valuable to me. And because I make so many tools, it's, it's very valuable to keep that kind of flowing and to be able to share it with right. other people. And it's interesting because usually nobody comes up with anything that I haven't already kind of thought about, right? But I find it's fascinating to see what people come up with, yeah. you know, and, and the way they thing. approach it. Yeah. yeah. And um, I have no problem just letting it all happen and accepting it, just making sure nobody's hurting themselves. Right. That's important. But if I wouldn't, you know, often I wouldn't solve some kind of technical tool problem the way they do, yeah. you know. And sometimes I know, well, you know, that's overkill. Or I try to think of when I create my tools, they have to be very functional. So I, everything, all my decisions that I make are functional decisions. Um, I laminate, all my tools are laminated with like 100 layers of glitter and polyurethane so that when I'm in a performance and there's smoke in the air, the sun shines on the tool, and I can see it. Yeah. And I can keep, there's a magnetism between me and my tool that isn't broken. Right. That's really important to me. So everything, you know, like functional, it can't be big, so big that I can't, I can't twirl it without it hitting my feet. You know, the wheels should be smoothly working because if they stick, it screws up my experience. It's yeah. all about my experience. Right, right. You know, I mean, the marks, can, whatever marks it makes, I can use, I know I can incorporate into any paint, into a painting somewhere in some time, you know. So there are many tools I don't use um, often. And there's some that are my favorite because the user experience element of it is just like amazing. Yeah. And I like how they look visually. 
Um, so the way I sort of make decisions with sculpture has to do with function. Right. You know, and, yeah. and if there's something in there that's not functioning and isn't really adding anything, I won't add it. But often when you do these workshops, you know, there's a lot of things that are added to these tools that have no purpose, that are just cumbersome, that are in the way, that make the experience not so great. So I keep on sort of trying to hit home that, you know, these are going to be used. People don't think about using their sculptures for anything other than kind of putting them somewhere, right? Yeah. Like, so, look at this. Yeah. Because anything we use, we buy, usually. Right. Right. Well, they had, that's the idea. I mean, when people are making I mean, yeah. things, it's usually to either use it themselves or other people mm-hmm. for use. Right. So I even build my own chairs and stuff that are the right height. I mean, it's almost completely extra. But the last thing I want to think about when I'm making artwork and thinking about an image or thinking about, you know, yeah, an, an imagery or whatever, color, is to think, God, my, I'm not sitting on a chair that I feel stable in or... Right. Or this tool is is not rolling at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like fighting um, your material. Fighting the material. Yeah. And so um, that's a concept I think that has to be learned and we take it for granted. And also we are so much like the one size fits all kind of way of thinking mm-hmm. in this country. If you go to Home Depot and you're a woman, you're gonna find that there's one work glove that will fit you. Right. One. Yeah. Thank God I have a kind of big hand that can go into a medium. Mm-hmm. But I, my assistants, it's like I have to always get them that, one, that, you know, if they have smaller hands, it's, there's one choice. Now, why is that? Yeah. You know, because we know, the, we, we know the answers for that. But, but I'm saying that, like, form-fitting everything to you and your body, it makes, it makes the experience. Um, remember Nine Inch Nails? Yeah, of course. that i grew up with them in high school right so so that idea wasn't uh wasn't foreign to me of you know an art an artist form fitting the tools to their body so that their their body movement and their the way that they move everything the drum is located exactly where his hand will hit it not where your hand would hit it or my my arm would reach custom yeah custom customizing everything do you have a custom car no i won't do that it's not important to me it's not it's not an art-making tool. It feels too too much. I'd rather I customize my tools. I've customize I customize. I I chose I well I I did I put in the darkening well, it's lens. It's a tool too. St- yeah, it makes sense. It is. You're looking. Mm-hmm. I mean, what more important tool than looking through this right. stuff every minute of the day? You know. That's right. That's right. And yeah. artists are especially painters are interested in that often. Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, so I customize a lawnmower by making it into a hot rod. I put you know flames on it, and I use that to paint with and to nice. cut up paint and create paintings with. Um, so anyway, yeah, customizing tools makes sense to me, but customizing cars, I love it. I love looking at. It. I have books and books and books and books of customized cars, mm-hmm. but driving around in it, it seems too. Much, it doesn't fit who I am. Right. Yeah, I don't have one either, but when I see yeah. those shows where they take a car mm-hmm. and completely gut it and redo it like for that person and what they like, I'm yeah. always amazed by that. Yeah, there was that uh, MTV one, um, Pimp, Pimp, Pimp Your Ride. ride yeah, yeah, with Exhibit. Amazing. Love that show. But there was always a lot of things that were 
extra, like too much in there. I like think that was the, you know, five video screens. It's like, right. you're going to get into it. You know, like you don't need five, you know, <laughs> but I remember this, this ice cream truck. Did you see that one th- where I'm a sure. hand and a robotic hand came out? It didn't look like a hand. It was in a robotic arm came out with your ice cream cone. Oh, I didn't see that, but that seems like a lot. It's <laughs> <That's> a lot. <laughs> they probably run out of ideas. I mean, they got to fill yeah. a half-hour show. It's like, how much stuff are we going to fit in this vehicle? Mm-hmm. But in that sense, that's kind of, they're pushing the creative side of things. You oh, know? yeah. I love it's the ones where they put so many speakers in the trunk <laughs> that you know they're, you're just going to destroy the pavement. Oh, yeah. Style. Yeah, I just love exactly. It. They're like, you like music? All right, we're going to give you like 10 million watts. <laughs> Decibels of sound. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I remember going to Graceland. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been there? I haven't. It's worth the trip. If you like customized living spaces, that place is customized. I can I mean, imagine. I mean, I've heard you know, stories about it. Yeah, carpeted ceilings. I mean, carpeted lampshades. Whoa. I know. It's unbelievable. And he used to sit, when he watched TV, he would watch many at once, all on in like a, in a, in a formation on the, in front of him. So they'd be stacked. In, I want to say in a guy. cube or something, yeah. but they were stacked, and he'd watch all the stations at once. It's, it's totally customized way of sort of absorbing the world, right? It I sounds mean, like it, a Nandrin uh, pack, like yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, insulation <laughs> ahead of his time. Yeah, <laughs> eating a banana. What did he like? Uh, peanut butter peanut banana, butter banana sandwich. sandwich. Well, never ended a podcast on an Elvis reference. <laughs> There's always a first. <laughs> John Cage. There, we ended there it. A little go. more intellectually. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk. Oh, thank you. I look it's forward to seeing the stuff in the future and and the sound thing I'm going to see too. So. I do too. That that's got to be on the docket soon. Make it happen somehow. That'll be great. Yeah. Thanks for Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more images from the podcast on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or on Instagram at Alfred Studio. Many thanks to Rosemary Fiore. It was great meeting up with her in Pennsylvania and doing the podcast. Make sure you check out her work and follow her on Instagram at Rosemary Fiore NYC. Many thanks to Michael Lovett for the intro, Evan Marion for the intro outro music, and Emily Burns for her design assistance. You can become a Patreon patron of the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash Podcast. You can uh, get your name dropped in one of these episodes and get a hand-drawn thank you. And listeners like you help support the podcast, so please go to iTunes, rate and review, or Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please put in the good word and spread the word to others. Thanks so much.